Here you on eight. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm Will Barry, and I am a paramedic, and I will be leading us through today's topic. We also have Ross, our faithful EMS physician, and we brought back to the show Dave Edwards. Thanks, Dave. My pleasure. I'm excited. For those of you that don't know, Dave works in the Denver EMS system as the assistant director of clinical performance. So Dave, in a nutshell, what does that mean? So that means that I try to oversee the quality of, of our entire, entire emergency medical response system. So that's the 911, what's your emergency, the call taking, the EMD, Denver police, Denver fire response, their medical care, Denver paramedics, all the way through disposition at the hospital. Awesome. Um, well, thanks again for coming on. Today, we're going to be talking about trauma triage, and the catalyst for this episode was a couple years ago, the American College of Surgeons, the ACS, they revised their guidelines for field trauma triage, and they took a different approach to it. Most of us are used to a trauma triage algorithm that is several boxes connected by, you know, if then statements, you start with this. And if you see that you move this direction, if not, you go that direction. And it can be pretty prescriptive. And it can lead us through our assessment and arrive at a triage category, deceased, critical or red, delayed, yellow, or green, they're the the least acute patients. The most recent guidelines from the ACS have changed that model to kind of more principle-based. And so what they've done is they've created a list of criteria that indicate the patient is red and a list of criteria that indicate your patient is yellow. And they've done away with the prescriptive how to think uh, model of an algorithm. So we're going to be discussing that and its implications for us in the field. But first, I want to toss to you, Ross. What is the ACS and why do we listen to them? That's a great question, Will. Uh, I will attempt to answer it, but thanks for, you know, taking lead on this and doing this episode. I'm super excited. I can't think of two more well-knowledged and articulate people in EMS than, than you and Dave. So I'm super excited to just sit back and listen to what you guys have to say. The American College of Surgeons, it's a big national group that essentially gets together and tries to determine best practices or best guidelines for various things with regards to surgery and, you know, in our interest here with regards to trauma and trauma surgery. And that's who they are. And so it's it's a national group, including physicians all across the United States who get come together and attempt to look at the evidence and come up with best practices when it comes to surgery. And how do they, you kind of mentioned this, but how do they generally arrive at their recommendations? Are they just thinking about all of their personal experiences and how they have treated certain cases? 
I mean, honestly, sometimes, uh, but no, no, what they try to do is they, they'll, they'll do a, a lit review and they'll try to find the best known evidence on a specific topic. And if there is high quality evidence, they generally rank evidence based on the, you know, was it a double blind, randomized, controlled placebo trial, which is like the gold standard. And that's a very high level quality of evidence of saying, yeah, we have a good definitive answer for this, but it's difficult in the real world to always get those, especially in the pre-hospital setting, especially in something as acute and emergent as trauma. And so in those cases, they'll look at observational studies, which have a lower rating of, of evidence and strength of that evidence. And if there's no evidence at all, if there hasn't been a trial to look at the specific question we're talking about, it's essentially what they call expert consensus. And so the people on these committees are generally considered experts in their field of medicine, and they will sit down and they'll debate and they'll say, based on, you know, studies looking at other things that aren't applicable or based on, you know, experiences that we have personally had within medicine or theories or animal based models, this is what we feel is the best guideline or the best treatment modality based on our expert consensus of, of these physicians across the United States. So to sum up a little bit, if this body of surgeons tells us that getting shot in the chest is really, really, really bad, we can listen to them. I think so. I mean, some of this true is just like intuitively, right? that makes sense. Yeah, there's a lot of important structures in the chest. That's bad. Um, but yes, they're all experts in their field. So they're, what they say does carry weight. But and they, and they list the limitations they have. They list like, yes, what we're saying here has high quality evidence or no, it doesn't. And this is just our best attempt at how we should approach this. Nice. We're going to be referring to this new document multiple times throughout our discussion. And the best thing to do is if you're unfamiliar with it, a simple search engine prompt of um, ACS field trauma triage, it'll probably be the first hit. And I would recommend taking a peek at it. It'll probably add some context to our discussion. And we should have some show notes on our website, emspodcast.com, that will have these guidelines listed on there as well. So Dave, I want to throw to you really quick. As somebody that looks at a system from the time 911 is called all the way potentially through hospital outcome, what are some of your thoughts on how they changed their recommendations and their, their approach to thinking about these patients? There's a couple pieces. First of all, it made me very nervous. I'm not going to lie. There's comfort in an algorithm. There's comfort in see this, do this. Of course, the problem with that is that it's it's fraught with error because nothing is as simple as an algorithm. Nothing is as simple as see this, do that. So initially, I was like, "Oh man, <laughs> this is gonna this is gonna delay the resources getting to a trauma patient even more because I'm gonna have I'm gonna have somebody stepping back saying, you know, it was easier when I had salt. It was easier when I had start because I could just point at somebody and know what they were. That was my my gut." To be honest, though, that's my thought about a 50-patient a call, a 50-patient trauma call. Well, you've been in the business a long time. I've been in the business a long time. Ross has been in the business a long time. 
have we ever experienced a 50 patient call? No, I've experienced 50 people and like five of them are hurt and you're trying to sift through like what is white noise versus where do I need to actually be applying my efforts? Right, which is which is what I really like about this new, and we'll get into it more, I'm sure, but this new context of I'm defining the reds, I'm defining the yellows. By default, everyone else is green. Don't get caught up in the white noise. Stop trying to define these, this, the people walking around not complaining. Stop trying to categorize them. They've already categorized themselves. That's a, that's a, sub, a subset, though. It made me nervous, but what I really like about it is that when you get down to it, this is encouraging pre-hospital providers to think, to practice what they know, to demonstrate their understanding of pathophysiology, especially in the setting of trauma, but these fit for medicine also, but understanding their, the concepts there of how injuries hurt the body, what that means when they affect the brain, when they affect the heart, when they affect the vessels, and the ability to act on that. I really like it. Dave, listening to you mention that, it's funny to me because in our episode, when you talked to us about the principles of trauma and the work that you did with regards to that document, we talked about trauma being an algorithm. And you, hot take, yeah. said, <laughs> I would argue trauma is not algorithmic. Right. And we talked about the stresses and the complexity of those calls that highlighted that. Yeah. So to hear you worry about it, stepping away from this algorithm surprises me. Ultimately, what I want is that when the first providers walk onto a chaotic scene of, of 5, 10, 15 patients, heaven forbid more, that they aren't bogged down with a cognitive burden. I want things to be as simple as possible. And it's why in our system, uh, thanks to Will's insight, you know, we, we did move away from start triage because we wanted salt because we didn't have to remember even numbers. I don't, I'm not checking a pulse. I'm not remembering a number. I'm remembering a few key points and I'm pointing people in the right direction. And this is a, a pre-triage, right? Understanding that triage is, by definition, sorting of patients. Will got fancy earlier with some French words before we started recording. Triage is a French word, which literally means to sort. That's what we're doing with these patients. But I also think it's important to, to do that as rapidly as possible. Understanding that we can reprioritize the transport orders. We can reprioritize the, the triage categories. But my, that's why my initial stress was there. My heartburn established because it's not algorithmic. But if we can, if we can remove every single cognitive barrier possible, the better. That being said, this doesn't add a lot. It adds clinical critical thinking, which I encourage. And as I think Will, uh, Will encourage us to talk about in a little bit, it can be practiced. And even that can become a very rapid automatic thought process. Yeah, I agree with you. I think when Will brought up these changes to me and we started talking about them, I was very excited about it because just like you said it, in my mind, this simplifies what's going on. And just like you talked about going from start to salt to simplify your trauma triage, I, I see these guidelines doing that even further. And we have we have come up with so many acronyms for possible MCI triage protocols. And I feel like a lot of them get hung up with the complexity of it. And what I like about this is breaking it down into the simplicity of what you do on an everyday call and applying that on a greater scale. 
one of the things for me in this discussion that's almost kind of the elephant in the room is an algorithmic triage method looks great in a protocol book, but when you get onto a scene, you're unless you've practiced it and practiced it, you're not going to remember it. Which we all just we all just admitted that we've never had one of these calls. They happen. We need to know how to run them because they may happen to you, but they're rare and few and far between. Right. And in the midst of the stress of, a, of many, many patients, you're going to fall back to what is most comfortable, which is your clinical acumen that you've hopefully honed on all the patient interactions you've had. The hardest pivot you can make is to be in an incredibly stressful situation step back and say, oh, I need to open my mental file cabinet and pull out this other thing that I have basically have never used before, and I need to use it really, really well. And Dave, I actually learned a lot about that from you. But thanks. And I think the other part, um, Will, because we've worked on after action incident reports together of, of multi-patient calls. The other thing that, right, as I'm processing all of this that that came to mind was, where salt and start and other formulaic prescriptive algorithms fell apart is when pre-hospital providers who are very intelligent and well-practiced said, but I couldn't follow that algorithm because this patient didn't fit in that category. They were, I could, I knew from my experience, they were sicker than what the algorithm said. Dave, it makes me, it makes me think about, um, the book Thinking Fast and Slow, which I read as a recommendation from you, and System 1 and System 2 Thinking. Could you explain that? Absolutely. So thankfully, um, our human brains are neuroplastic. Thankfully, uh, as we learn and practice skills, they become what we'll refer to as second nature. I experienced this firsthand. I think, Will, you can attest to this. When I ask my daughters who are in elementary school, simple math problems, and I watch them count two plus eight, and I watch them do these things that if I were to ask you, it comes to you no problem. Thankfully, we our brains work in a way where we faster wire. The, the, that's what a cognitive bias is. It's a, it's, a, it's a faster way that our brain thinks in order to develop rapid movement, rapid decision-making, because if if we had to deliberately think about everything we did all day long, we would accomplish nothing. To go back and summarize, um, Daniel Kahneman, a uh, behavioral economist, wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow. The idea is that there's a, a process for thinking fast and there's a process for thinking slow and deliberate. And thinking fast is automatic. Thinking fast is unavoidable. Thinking fast takes no energy. It just happens. And it happens because we have experienced these things over and over again. When I see clear words on a sign, I don't have to think. I can't even avoid reading those words because through my life, I've read words. When somebody says bread and, I automatically fill in butter. When somebody says peanut butter and, I automatically fill in jelly. These are automatic because my, my lifetime has been spent thinking about these things. And I can't avoid thinking about them. And for a paramedic, Unlike the deliberate system two thinking that is very, I have to engage it. It takes energy. It actually takes a, a pathological response of an elevated blood pressure and dilating pupils, elevated heart rate. 
a little bit of, of perspiration, complicated division, complicated processes, like, like counting all the letter J on a, uh, in a book. That would be very difficult because my brain would want to read where now I'm counting. That's a very system two. What most paramedics do is engage system one, which is I've seen dozens of patients a day, several shifts a week for years. So when I see a, a patient, trauma or medical, my system one can break down sick or not sick very quickly. And I don't need an algorithm to tell me that when I try to default to an algorithm I'm not comfortable with, I'm actually forcing a system two engagement to do a system one process. Yeah. And where I want to segue from here is we've learned about what the American College of Surgeons is and who they are and why we should listen to them. We know that they've given us these new guidelines for how to prioritize uh, critically injured trauma patients in the field. And they're getting away from prescribing how we should think. And now we're talking a little bit about how we develop those patterns of thinking. What I want to do now is, for any field providers listening to this, I want to give you guys some really tangible ways to develop that. Because simply showing up on a call doesn't necessarily develop your your clinical recognition of certain things. There are things you can do on every patient interaction that will make you better for when you are faced with three, five, 10, 20 patients. The first thing that came to mind was feeling a radial pulse on everybody if you can. And I think there's a lot that can be determined from that radial pulse. Is it present? Is it not present? Is it fast? Is it slow? Is it strong? Is it weak? And I'm not necessarily talking about counting it. I'm just talking about reaching down and feeling a radial pulse. I think the more we do that on all of our patients, the more we hone a, just a critical assessment tool. You know, well, um, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that this is the key to it. And I, I'm going to flashback many years and I'm going to uh, expose myself for being as old as I am. I went to paramedic school in 2000. Um, and if we can all flash back to 2000, you don't have to tell me where you were. But 2000 was pre-Google, right? Pre-modern day internet. 2000 was pre-iPhones, pre-9-11. Like it was a different world then. Well, when I went to school, I was told that the American College of Surgeons had gotten together and made a different decision. But they decided that a simple way to explain this was to say, if four body systems fail you, they kill you immediately. And only four. And I still teach this. Now, the reason I preface with the 2000 anecdote was because I don't know if ACS keeps their data back to 2000. I don't know if they have those papers published. I, I, I can't necessarily find it, but I think this is still good science. As long as one of their recommendations has nothing to do with um, mass trousers, we're on a good track here. We're on a good track. So what, what I was taught was if, if the neurologic system, the respiratory system, the cardiovascular system, or the hematologic system fails you, that will lead to immediate death, but only, or, or a quick death at least, but only when one of those four body systems fail you. So endocrine system failure is horrible, but we can, we can supplement that and you can live a long time with a good quality of life. Or even if you don't tr receive treatment for that, it's not until the failure of that system affects one of the other four that it leads to death. And this in turn is kind of what we're saying here. This is what they're still carrying forward in this assessment is that 
if you can assess the body systems, if you have an understanding of pathophysiology that you hone on every call, whether it's a non-emergent response and somebody that you think is a, a safe refusal to a, a, an emergent return to the hospital that you know is sick, if you're assessing those four body systems on every call, when you come across that trauma, your assessment is the same. It's feeling for a pulse. Can you follow commands? Assessing respiratory system. And you're assessing those body systems. That still holds true today. What I was told 23 years ago had been decided a few years prior by, by the ACS. But that same, whether you're sitting in a chair complaining of, of knee pain, whether you fell off a ladder, whether you're in a train crash, a plane crash, multi-shooting, I'm going to assess all of those patients the same way. Exactly what you're saying. I'm going to feel a pulse. I'm going to see if they can follow commands. I'm going to assess the respiratory effort and make sure I don't have any gross blood loss, which would also uh, probably be evidenced through the, my radial pulse. But I'm going to assess those pieces and make a, a clinical decision based on my appreciation of pathophysiology as to whether my patient is red, yellow, or green. Yeah, Dave, um, to flesh it out a little more, how do you recommend to people to make a very quick assessment of someone's neurofunction? Absolutely. So what I would recommend, I mean, on, on most everyday call, you do what you, if you flash back to, to paramedic school, EMT school, it's probably what you were taught anyway. You walk in, you introduce yourself, you put your hand out, shake my hand, and then you turn that handshake into a pulse check. But you just don't do it to do it. You do it as part of an assessment because when you walk up to a patient and you make eye contact, you're assessing whether they're tracking you. You're assessing whether they're acknowledging your presence. You're, you're paying attention to how they're sitting, how they're breathing. Is there orthopnea? Is there not? What is their skin color? You put your hand out and here's the, I don't have to say, ma'am, sir, shake my hand. When I put my hand out, that's a follow a command assessment. I put my hand out. They reach out. They grab my hand. I, I kind of feel the grip. I feel the warmth of their skin. And then I pull that into a pulse check and I've done the mentation check along with a respiratory check and along with that pulse check. And it all comes together in the first 10 seconds of my patient contact. So Ross, I want to ask you, um, when you walk into a patient's room in the emergency department, what are some tools you employ to, in less than five seconds, assess someone's neurofunction? Yeah, that's exactly the same thing that Dave just mentioned. I mean, it's not much different for me in the emergency department when I'm doing this. When I walk into a room, I see whether or not the patient's tracking my movements throughout the room. I see whether or not they're answering questions appropriately. I'm assessing whether or not they're slurring their speech. The first thing I do when I walk into the room is I introduce myself and then I ask them what their name is. I already know what their name is. I have a I have an electronic medical record and somebody who triaged this patient and I already know what their name is, but I walk in, I introduce myself, I ask them what their name is. And that tells me, are they alerted and oriented to who they are? And if they're answering questions appropriately, slurring their speech, I keep an eye on their track, their head movements, as well as any sort of extremity movements to see which extremities they're spontaneously moving. And that can give me a quick assessment of their neurologic function. And if I pick up any immediate concerns there, I can dive deeper. Or if their history suggests any immediate concerns, then I can dive deeper into more specific neurologic exams. That's awesome. The, w the way I expand on this in my mind, obviously, if you're, let's say it's a, a multi-patient incident um, of whatever flavor, car wreck, mass shooting, whatever. Yes, we may not be able to 
ask every single person their name and what happened to them, but we can say, get up and move towards whatever. And can they just follow that command? There's very practical application to why we would ask them to do such a thing, maybe safety reasons, but we're also uh, rolling that into an assessment. We mentioned feeling a pulse, shaking someone's hand, and just introducing ourselves and how in about five seconds or less, we can learn a lot uh, just from that. Dave, I want to hear you expand a little more. Obviously, if there's significant hemorrhage, that's, you know, obviously life-threatening very quickly. What might be some other hematological things that we would be assessing for? So that's a good question. I think, um, I mean, ultimately in the trauma patient, that's mostly it. Right. I mean, it's it's is the blood outside of the body when it's supposed to be on the inside for medical patients. You know, I mean, then we get into some internal bleeding again. Still, is the blood not where it's supposed to be? Um, There's some blood disorders that we could learn about and know about. But even those, the failure of which if we're asking questions like, do you have a history of sickle cell? Do you have a history of anemia? And they're able to answer our questions, then that system isn't failing us immediately. It's uh, most of that I'm going to say is, is the blood not where it's supposed to be. So what, what I'm hoping anyone listening to this is starting to develop is an appreciation for some really simple things that you can apply to every patient interaction that don't take a lot of time and give you some really powerful assessment findings in a matter of seconds. From those assessment findings, you can then filter them through some of these recommendations from the American College of Surgeons and develop a sense of acuity. For example, one of the first things under the red category is penetrating injuries to the head, neck, torso, and then proximal extremities. That's something that I think when we see it, we intuitively think, I want that person at the hospital very, very, very quickly. But if you're not looking for those things and leaning into your assessment thoughtfully, then you won't find them. And if you don't practice this, it's not just going to show up on game day. I was curious, Ross, I'm going to put you on the spot. Are there any other quick assessment tools that you utilize in your setting that you think would be helpful for someone in the field? And the reason I specifically ask you is a physician in the emergency department might go room to room really quickly when you're busy and basically have to do a triage. And most paramedics, you know, we're going single patient to single patient. So I didn't know if you had any further wisdom on how when you're going room to room in a busy emergency department, you form some of your your quicker assessments. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm actually going to bring it, take a step back from that. It's not when I go from room to room. It's actually when I take a step back and take a 10,000 foot view of that emergency department, which is something you've talked a lot about before is so important on these multiple patient calls is having the ability to avoid getting sucked into that single patient. So for me, it's to avoid getting sucked into that single room in the emergency department and take a step back and look at the emergency department as a whole. So in the emergency department, when I'm doing that, <clears throat> I have a track board. I have an electronic medical record with a list of all of the patients that are in my zone in my emergency department. I also have a list of all of the patients that are in the waiting room. And what I 
do multiple times a shift when I'm dealing with multiple patients is I will run that quote unquote list. I run the list and I go through it and I, some of the patients I have seen, I have personally seen, and I know in my mind intuitively where I feel they fall on that sickness and priority category based on some of these things you've talked about, plus other tests and exams that I'm doing. But a big part of it is I look at their vital signs. I mean, that's the biggest thing I'm doing when I run the list on people I haven't seen yet is what are their vital signs. And then the second thing I look at is how old are they and how many comorbidities do they have? So age, comorbidities, and vital signs are things that I take a quick look at when I'm running my list of patients. And when I'll, I'll look into the waiting room too, and I'll, I'll see, you know, when people are sitting in the waiting room, they'll have vital signs if they've been triaged and they'll have a short blurb of their chief complaint. And so, like you said, penetrating trauma to the torso, we all understand is a high risk complaint. This goes along with medical complaints too. I will run the list of medical complaints. I will compare that to what I'm seeing with their vital signs. I will compare that to their age and their risk factors or their other medical problems. And all of that together gives me a sense of who are my sickest patients. And then I combine that as I move room to room. So as I move room to room, we're doing, you're putting to words a lot of this, like you guys were talking about type one thinking and, and so much of it is type one that we don't think about it when we're doing it. And I don't think about it when you ask me about it, but I mean, when I walk into the room, I'm looking at their skin color. I'm looking at their eyes. I'm looking at their response to my movements, their response to my questions, their movement of their extremities, the other people in the room and how they interact with them. I'm looking at the monitor they're on and taking a quick look. Are, are their vital signs the same that I just looked at at the computer? And I'm doing all of that just intuitively as I walk into the room. And together, that gives you a sense of, of it really comes down to what we talk about, sick versus not sick. Is this patient sick versus not sick? And then I start to rank those sicknesses in my mind when I compile a list of patients that I have in my zone. And I'd like to add to that because I think, Ross, what you said is extremely important from the physician standpoint. It's what Will and I are talking about from the pre-hospital standpoint. But to re-illustrate, it became system one, something you can be comfortable with because you had a years-long residency and fellowship and then practice. And it is, if I can't stress this point enough, and I think that this is one of Will's strong messages here, is that it is only through deliberate repetition that we have learning and growth. And if I go, I could run every call all day long, greeting my patient, checking a pulse, doing my thing. But if I'm not thinking about from the start of my career, and if I haven't at the start of my career, then start it today. Anybody who's listening, start it today. Deliberately think about everything you're seeing in the first 20 seconds as part of your assessment. I almost wish I had, I had an insight here while we were talking that I, I almost wish that I had written my my healthcare records in a way that said that, like, in the first 10 seconds, I was able to determine that the patient was not sick because, and then I could have listed out all the reasons, because they were sitting upright without apnea, uh, there was no gross hemorrhage when they made eye contact, they tracked appropriately, they put their hand out, they shook my hand, they had a good grip, they had warm skin. And I, I kind of feel like I wish I had documented that in that way to support the like, hey, I do this assessment every time, hundreds of patients, hundreds of patients over and over again, so that when it happens that I see something out of the ordinary, I'm ready for it. I want to I want to add on to that that if you're in a if you're in a position where you're precepting either a student or or a a new hire paramedic, create an environment where that is the very first thing that they're honing 
before they're adding on all the other pieces that we're inevitably juggling on these calls. How are we getting them out of here? Are we going to use the stair chair? Where's the stretcher? Who's going to hook them up to the monitor? All these other things that, that uh, create cognitive load. First, have your, your student or your trainee focus on just developing this quick assessment before you give them more plates yeah. to spin. No, you're right. De deliberate repetition. Practice it, learn it. You talk about the deliberate practice piece of this, and you're so right. I, I talked about running the list in the emergency department and looking at all of my patients like it was second nature, but that is a an easily identifiable progression from year one of residency to year one of, or to year four of emergency medicine residency, where you see residents progress along that path. And it's one of the things that attendings and experienced residents will teach the, the younger, more junior providers is you got to run your list more. It feels like you're slowing down and taking time to, to run through each patient on, on your board, your computer screen. But if you do that, you will be quicker. It feels backwards. And then the more you do that, every single shift, the quicker you become at it and the more automatic it becomes to sit down on the computer and run your list and get a sense of all the patients you have in the emergency department and your priorities of next steps in care for each of them. Right. And what what you're doing, Ross, and what you're talking about too is, is going to, I think, align with what we need to talk about here, which is taking that step back, looking at all of my patients and deciding who's who in the order of, of the ranking structure of who's the most important, who goes where, what, where, how am I doing this? Because we hone the skill on single patient calls, whether it's, a, again, a medical call or a trauma call, but then at some point, I'm going to have to weigh them one against the other as to who leaves first, who leaves with whom, who's taking whom and where, and that's a whole other piece. And if that's my first call that I'm thinking Oh, what a disaster. Yeah, Dave, will you expand a little bit on how physically sorting and prioritizing patients is different from assessing their acuity? Sure. So we have a guideline. We've had guidelines. We've had an algorithm. Now we have a guidelines for how to, to sort them into a, a red, sort them into yellow, sort them into a gray, sort them into a green. That's great, but I still then potentially have five patients in each category. But now I have to determine amongst the five reds, five yellows, and five greens, who goes out when. This is where critical thinking comes in. This is where I don't want to be bogged down with my cognitive stressors of who's really sick, who isn't, how do I know if they're sick, how do I do a 10-second assessment. That all has to be very system one automatic based on my past deliberate repetitions so that now I can sit back and say, I have five reds. I know that these five have to leave the scene, hopefully as fast as possible. But now I can sit back and say, how many resources are on scene to transport? How many can take more than one? Who goes to what trauma center or specialty center based on needs? And that's, I think this is what you're asking us. Now I can put now I can engage and have an elevated blood pressure, an elevated heart rate, perspiration, dilated pupils. I can engage system two to say, how do I move these people off the scene? Because I can only do one system two function at a time. And if system, if my categorizing of patients, my triaging is system two, 
then I can't figure out how to get people off the scene. I can't figure out which ones get in which ambulance at what time. But that's unique to the call, regardless of whether it's a car crash, a shooting, a building collapse, five people who fell off a balcony. These pieces are going to come together. And I ha- that's when I can step back and say, cool, who do I have? Who do I maybe even which which resources do I trust? Maybe I know one medic from another. They're from my system. And I say, I'm going to send you with two reds because I know you've been doing this for a long time. And for a long time, you've been a, a lifelong learner and you're the you're the medic that I can trust to take two critical patients. Maybe the next one is a field training ambulance. And I can say, I can trust you to take two yellows or a red and a yellow so you get them off scene. But that's where the cognitive practice comes in is that, that in, I can engage system two which takes energy after I've gone through and not engaged system two yet. What I think I'm deciphering from hearing you talk is, so if we put into practice some of these recommendations we're talking about with just good, quick assessment pearls, and we create that assessment to be something that is automatic and system one, then we can devote some cognitive load towards all these, what I'm calling, operational challenges that inevitably define these calls you know it's spread out over a long space or or area or we can access some patients but not others or these folks are family and they say they won't be separated from one another um is that kind of aligned with what you're talking about dave wholeheartedly i think thanks to the current acs guidelines and whatever an agency can do to remove what Will and I you've referred to in the past as as the cognitive markers, the the cognitive initiators of of I need to pull a switch now. Remove all of those if you can. Um, I like the idea of a, a rapid patient count with to to a dispatch center that says I have about X number of reds, about X number of yellows, and send resources to the scene based on that. What I don't want is to have providers on scene having to think, well, I could put two of those in that ambulance, two of those in another, two in another, because then if I'm doing that while I'm triaging and while I'm deciding things, I'm taking up cognitive space. There's, there's a, that's a stressor that is not necessary. My point is, get all of the automatic things done so that when there comes a time and I have to put effort into my thoughts, I can do that. So between a system and an ACS guidelines, run the call automatic until you can't anymore. So I think we've talked a lot about the importance of system one thinking in our medical care and how each and every one does this and does it better with more repetitions and more practice and how advantageous that can be to us, especially when we're under stressful situations and we have a lot of things to do at once and how system two can slow us down and create increased cognitive load. We've talked about how a lot of these triage systems seem to incorporate too much of system two, which I think we can now see the downsides to that and how we like that the ACS guidelines are doing away with some of that system two cognitive load and bringing in more of that system one thinking and allowing us to do what we already do in practice and then do it quicker with less cognitive load. I think now's a good time to talk about the changes. Will, can you can you highlight everything we're talking about here with regards to the ACS changes to the triage and, and we can move forward after that? 
Yeah, absolutely. The best way will be for folks to pull it up themselves. But what you have is picture a sheet of paper divided in half. The top is red. The bottom is yellow. Red, there's just basically a bulleted list that says these injury patterns equal someone that's red. And then there's another column that says these mental status and vital sign changes would also indicate someone is red. They're not very earth shattering in terms of how profound they are. Unable to follow commands is the the top mental status change that indicates somebody is red. So if somebody is completely unresponsive, that's that's not good. Under the red, it says patients meeting any one of the above criteria should be transported to the highest level trauma center available within the geographic constraints of the system. And one reason I like that is some places don't have access to a level one trauma center. Some places have multiple level one trauma centers and they might, you know, there are system specific operational constraints that go into all of that. Some places to reach their level one trauma center might utilize a helicopter and it's not very quick to put multiple patients on multiple helicopters. So that can change your your uh your thinking there ultimately what i think they've done is they've created uh, a principle and they say how you reach this principle is is dictated by your system and your challenges moving towards the yellow the bottom half of the piece of paper so there's there's two columns again starting at the bottom it says patients meeting any one of the following yellow criteria who do not meet any of the red criteria should be preferentially transported to a trauma center as available within the geographic constraints the trauma system so you have a group of people a group of patients some of them obviously meet the red criteria that's easy they're red they're sick we need to get them off the scene as fast as possible to the highest level trauma center that we can reasonably make happen then we have all this other group of folks and inevitably some are fine some are more critical than others and we end up in this pretty big gray area and so what they talk about in this yellow section is two columns some specific mechanisms of injury we don't let mechanism of injury all by itself dictate what we do but i do like how this is basically saying hey if this is their mechanism this is associated with significant injury we should pay attention for example ejected from a vehicle okay at our first five second glance they didn't meet any of the red criteria but they were ejected from a vehicle the person that is also maybe walking around on scene that was not ejected from the vehicle, the patient that was ejected from the vehicle, they should probably be transported first because that's associated with high injury. There's also uh, a column under yellow that just leaves it up to the EMS provider's judgment. Let's say we have, we're evaluating two patients that are up walking around following commands, have a radial pulse, all these things that we very quickly assessed, but one of them is on anticoagulants. Well, that's associated with a lot of risk. That person should 
receive care first or receive transport first. And so they give you some of these things to, to steer your judgment towards higher risk of injury. And then the last but not least thing is if you're concerned, take them to a trauma center, which in my opinion is like saying, trust your gut. If you think they need to go to a very capable facility, send them there. What Will would add to that is hone your gut, like we're talking about. Hone your system one, develop it, practice it on every call so that when you do have that that sense in the back of your mind that says, I think this person is actually sick, you listen to it. Get follow up on your patients. So you can see, you can confirm that suspicion. That patient looked like this. They had this serious thing wrong with them. When a patient looks like that, I should be concerned. Absolutely. Right. Because I think one of the important things here is like about that honing the gut is that if you don't hone your gut, your gut instinct is as good as any one of the patients that are on your scene. And you wouldn't refer to them. Hey, do you think you need to go to the hospital? I know you were ejected, but do you need to go? Like, we would never consider that. But like you hone your gut so that you're the expert on the scene. So with deliberate repetition on every call, we can get to the point where on these critical calls, we can say something isn't sitting right. And even if we can't because of the stressors, because of a mystery, because of what, if we can say, I think you need to go, you can trust it confidently. And even if it's a little bit of an over triage, I'd rather that in this situation than, ah, my gut's not telling me anything, so you can go. Yeah, there was actually a study that the these new ACS guidelines refer to, if you go to their website, that was just published in 2023, examining over triage versus under triage, and then discussing our comfort level with each. And they, in a nutshell, advocate for a certain margin of over triage is actually good, and we should be doing that. And Dave, as someone that looks at the quality of an entire system, I'm wondering, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I, I like it. I mean, if we're going to err on either either end of that midpoint, I would much rather people over triaging. The last thing I want is the extreme over triage, right? The, the exaggeration of that is I have a four car crash, a couple people ejected, a couple people walking around. What I don't want is saying everybody goes to the level one trauma center because then the level one trauma center shuts down. They can't take care of the critical patients. They're chaotic. We got to, it's not our job to take care of them, but we got to take care of our system. But I'd rather err a little bit on the side of over triage, whether it's following a gut or whatever, than sending patients because long term every transfer from one facility to another increases morbidity so i what i don't want is transporting patients who shouldn't be transported to lower level trauma centers or non-trauma centers going there when they're going to end up at the trauma at the level one i also know that dave when we talk about this we inevitably talk about all of the sort of what if operational things that inevitably plague these calls that I'm glad these recommendations are a movement towards just letting people make good decisions. So many of of our multi-patient approaches or mass casualty incident policies, procedures, dogma that gets taught, it's really reliant on 
okay, you have like all of these people in front of you right now and you're looking at all of them. Make a good decision, go. That's just not realistic. That's just not how these situations tend to play out. Would you agree with that? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the bottom line is, uh, you know, these calls, the bigger they get, the more complicated they get by nature. And I think no matter what, there's going to be elements of human error, human emotion, all of those pieces that, that play into it. Any provider who, who has honed their skills, who's, who's taken it upon themselves to be the best provider that they can be, which, which I do believe is most of them, right? And I think that if the first round of triaging is done with a critical eye and not an algorithm, there's more trust built into that later in the call as it goes on. It's not going to go perfect. But again, I mean, this is just the reason that we have to say, please understand that on every call you're on, you're practicing for the bigger one. And I encourage people, I encourage anybody who does this job, whether you're, I would encourage it for ER physicians to play the what if game. Hey, this is, I, I, my ER is full of non-critical patients right now. What if some of them were? I'm standing here. I have two people who are intoxicated that are, have to go to a, a, an ER because they can't take care of themselves. So let's go. What if they weren't intoxicated? What if they were shot? And play that what if game and just hone your skills day after day to be better than you were before so that you're ready for something bigger. And when it lays out in front of you, it's not going to go perfect. I understand that. But go into it with a critical mind and it's going to be a little better than otherwise. You show up to a scene with two or three patients, you have the time and resources and not a lot else is going on in the system. You're calling for extra ambulances to get more providers to take care of them, but run through that thought process of what if there were 10, 15 more patients right. here, could the two or three patients I have in front of me, could they go in one ambulance? Totally. Are there factors with their care, whether it's they both need a monitor or, or whatever else yeah. that would limit that. And I would have to come up with a different plan. Yeah. And think about things that we haven't even gotten into talking about yet because we're talking about the clinical aspect, but the operational piece of what, what's my ingress and egress? Like, have I thought about that? Because what I typically I'm not thinking about that when I'm a sole ambulance responding to a call with one or two patients. But boom, now it's five. Now it's 10. Have I thought about how to get all of these resources here so I don't have multiple agencies all nose to nose on a tight city street and now we can't get out? thinking about all of those things but if i if i play the what if game on the one or two patients then right on the five or ten i've already practiced it whether it's that day the next day but over and over again i practiced it so i'm ready you've called a second ambulance to the scene what if that second ambulance was another agency how are you going to communicate with them right yeah, yeah have i thought about that piece exactly yeah. by playing this what if game you're slowly developing some system one thinking around some of the operational pieces an example, uh, one of our posts in the Denver system was downtown right by the 16th Street Mall. If, if anyone's been to Denver, they're familiar with that. And a question that I would pose to partners and trainees when we would, we'd be sitting there, you know, probably drinking our Slurpee, looking at people walk by on the mall. And I would say, what if somebody just drove their car right down the mall and just plowed over? all these people, you know, use their car as a weapon. What would we do? 
and we would talk through those operational things. Where would we park? Where would we want ambulances to approach from? What would our radio call sound like? Where would we want them to leave? And sure, you can't create a cookbook for these things, but the more you think that way, the more you train on that, the more you can develop some of the system one thinking around those operational pieces. Right, because that is, it is deliberate repetition. And, and anything that you foresee as a challenge, and if you're not sitting there as a new paramedic or even an experienced paramedic thinking, man, I could be challenged with a mass patient call today. <laughs> You've lulled yourself into a false sense of security because obviously it can happen at any time. But if we're not even verbally role-playing these calls, role-playing those situations that are going to be awkward for us, that are going to be uncomfortable, then, then we're not doing our job like we should be. And I will like congratulate you for doing that piece of like, what would you do if this just happened right now? Like we watched it happen. How would we run that call? And that makes me think, Will, you've talked about before of embracing the wild card factors. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah. You're not going to control all the pieces. You're just not going to. And so you have to be comfortable with that. I was a whitewater rafting guide for a long time. And to me, it's very analogous to being on a river. A river has movement in a direction that you can't control. The rapids have forces at play that you can't control. You can't tell the river, hey, stop or hey, move this way. You can navigate through it. You can work with that current to get you to go where you want to go. You um, sometimes a wave hits you a certain direction and you have to react to that and get back on track, but you're, you're flowing with it. And I think about that a lot in terms of some of these calls, we can't tell whatever the stimulus was, hey, stop injuring people, please, for a second while I catch up, whether it's a plane crash, a, a act of violence, uh, whatever. We have to be able to roll with that. And there's going to be things that we can't control. And what you have to do is just come to grips with that from the start. We can't control these factors. so. The more cognitive load we offload before the call, then the more we can tackle a challenge as it comes our way. Like, whoa, I really didn't see this coming. Let's problem solve. Because all this other stuff has been trained to the point where it's automatic. And Will, to support that, that happens on every call already. You're, you're absolutely right. Like, and I frame that as that's the context of the call. The piece that we can't control is the the where the call happens, the weather, the when it happens, the who it happens to, and whether I could run 10 calls in one day, all of them cardiac chest pains, but each one will be unique in the patient that it is, their attitude towards me, their the family and bystanders on scene, whether it's in a park, whether it's outside in the rain, whether it's inside their... 20th floor of an apartment complex all of those elements like you're saying that's the the rushing water i can't control that come to terms with it understand that no different than once you start adding on more patients yeah dave you're right and it's incumbent upon people in in positions of leadership to to just recognize you can't write a protocol or a policy or a procedure for every situation and the best thing you can do is equip your people 
to be good thinkers. Yeah. Absolutely. We're going to bring it home now. Um, so if you haven't read the ACS guidelines, please do. Uh, check it out in the show notes or uh, search for it in Google. Read it. Try to commit those things to memory. They help guide your decisions for critically injured trauma patients. And then hone your quick physical exam that you do in the first five seconds of any patient interaction. Use these tools to make you a better provider and to look for these, these key indicators of injury, some of which can be subtle. And do it on every single call so that when you're met with multiple patients or the big one, you're practiced at it. This was great. Thanks, Will. Yeah. Good to see you, Will. I can't see you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. All right. Clap on three. One, two, three. Okay. That was terrible. Yeah. Dave screwed it up. Yeah. Let's try I hit again. the mic. Like, I was like, oh, I'm so awkward. <laughs>